Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're into chapter 6 now. Genesis chapter 6, and we're about to read the first four verses. Somebody mind reading the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6? Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves and all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is in deep flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. All right. Here we have in this situation, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, what commentators say is the most difficult passage in the book, these four verses. And it's, in fact, they will say that uh, this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Old Testament, these four verses. Uh, because there are some words in here that are just somewhat rare, and uh, so that makes it a little bit difficult to figure out what's being said. What does it mean? And so we'll go through it today. We'll, we'll do what we can to find out what, uh, what we're looking at here. Verse 1, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. So, so far, sounds good, right? No problem, at least so far. In fact, if you look at that, um, one of the words there that I want to emphasize is the word multiply. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth. When have we heard that before? Creation. Right, very soon after the creation. You see, in, um, if you look back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that was one of the initial commands that was given to man and woman, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is part of what they're supposed to be doing. This is part of the mandate that God gave to man and woman, the original man and woman. Go out there, have kids, spread out. And now it looks like people are spreading out. Although, do you ever realize that sometimes when we're doing something that God said we could be doing it in the wrong way, even though we're doing something God told us to do, Sometimes our motive might be wrong. Sometimes uh, the things, the baggage that we bring along with it as we're doing it can kind of disqualify us from actually getting brownie points with God in a sense. If, if you could call it that, you can't. In, in this sense, they are multiplying, but it, this isn't a good thing. This chapter is serving as an introduction as to why God's going to destroy everybody. All right? So these first verses are getting us, springboarding us into that idea that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe everybody out. And so this is introducing that. Chapter 6 is introducing what we're going to see in the next chapter is going to be the flood, beginning of the flood. So it's, now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. All right, so we already looked at that. Verse 2, that the sons of God, who, sons of God, who's that? Begin to ask yourself that question. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men. 
but they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. I should ask at this point as well, what different translations do we have represented in this room? What different translations are we using? New King James, New King James over there, okay. New American Standard. New American Standard, okay. NIV. NIV over here, okay. Any others? ESV. ESV over there and over there, okay. So we've got a good collection to work with, right? <laughs> we've got a good assortment here that we can say, what does your say? What does your say? All right. The sons of God and the daughters of men. One of the reasons that this passage is so difficult to translate is because, well, you've got to wrestle with who are these people? Who are these groups of people? And so in this case, we've got the sons of God. We're going to figure out who are the sons of God. The sons of God, it turns out, most of the commentators come down to three categories or three groups. Three groups of people. All right. Number one, and give me give me if you've heard one of these. All right. Tell me if you've heard. Who, who are the sons of God? What have you heard? Angels. Angels. What type of angels? Fallen. Fallen angels. All right. So one of the groups that would be suggested as candidates for the sons of God phrase, fallen angels. Any others that you've ever heard of? I was just thinking believers and then the... Okay, good. All right. Here's what I'm going to do. For believers, there is a category that people propose as a possibility for this phrase, the sons of God, that has to do with that idea. And that is that the sons of God are Seth's boys. All right? You remember the line of Cain and the line of Seth, the ungodly line of Cain in chapter 4, and then the godly line of Seth. And so some of your commentators would say, you know what, maybe sons of God is boys, descendants from the line of Seth. They would say, these are Seth boys. These are descendants of Seth. So who would, who would that make the daughters of men? If the boys are from Seth, who are the girls from? Cain. Cain's girls. <laughs> the female descendants of Cain. Right. If we go up here, and sons of God is fallen angels, what does that make the daughters of men? Just what it sounds like, right? <laughs> it makes them women. <laughs> right? Women, humans. All right. The other category that we have here that, that is proposed is often... Kings or rulers. Kings or rulers. That's kind of strange. That the sons of God, or if you were to read into it, kings or rulers, that the kings or the rulers took for themselves wives from the daughters of men. <laughs> it would make the daughters of men what? From the class of aristocracy, right? Mm -hmm. These would be a, a, a lower class mm -hmm. or the common, common folk. So if the sons of God are fallen angels, then the daughters of men are females. They're women. And what would be their crime? Because we're going to find out as we begin to read that this is not a good thing, that the sons of God and the daughters of, of men are getting together. All right. In fact, we should probably read further on. If you look at it, you start to see the picture a little bit more fully in those passages that we were looking at. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. That sounds like you could take it in a good way or a bad way. Hey, those are the mighty men. Those are the men of renown. Mm, not so much. <laughs> as we look a little closer, not so much. This turns out to be not a good thing. And you'll see it even more as we look at, not next week because I'm going to be gone next week, but as we look at the week after that, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, that this is not a good situation that's developing. Okay, So in this situation where the sons of God and the daughters of men, if it's fallen angels getting together with women and they're having children, there's a crime there, and the crime is what? 
what would the crime be in this situation? They've gone outside their category. There you go. Okay, good. Outside their category. Does that make sense? We'll look at that a little bit more. But that's that's as good a phrase as, as any, as we can come up. They've gone outside their their uh, their category, or another way you might say it is um, they've left their domain. Okay. Here, if it's kings and rulers taking women from the common folk, it sounds like the crime there is polygamy, because it sounds like it's a situation of more than one. All right. So the people that would propose this possibility, they're going to suggest to you the crime is polygamy. And then the third category, for those that would propose it says boys and canes girls, the situation is mixing. All right, It's mixing the righteous with the wicked. Because if you remember Cain's line, that ends up being a, an example of a wicked line. And Seth's line ends up being an example of the righteous line. And eventually the line that leads to Christ. Okay, So it's mixing the righteous with the wicked. Let's look at these each a little bit more closely here. Let's look at the fallen angels and the women category. Okay, fallen angels in the women category. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, Steve and Ron, you guys have ESV, is that correct? Yeah. Read for me verse 4 while everybody else follows along in their translations. The Nephilim were on the earth. Wait, what? Nephilim. Anybody else see that in their translations? I do. You do? Okay. Anybody have giants? Yes. Yes. Okay, so a couple translations have giants and a couple have Nephilim. I want to take you to another passage, all right? Because this word, the Nephilim, only shows up in one other place in all of the Bible. It's in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. All right? That word, whether it's Nephilim or Nephilim, I don't know, but no matter how you say it, it's a Hebrew word, okay? And it actually has a translation. It means the fallen ones. So this category, this group of people, the Nephilim, are the fallen ones. But really, what does that mean? If you can go to other places in your Bible, that can usually provide you some clues. So we go to the other place in the Bible where this word occurs, and it's over, like I said, in Numbers 13.33. What does it say in Numbers 13.33? You saw there the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, Good. who are of the giants. Even to ourselves, we looked like grasshoppers, and so we looked to them. Good. What is the setting for this passage? What's the background, the backstory of, the, of this passage? Spied off the land. Right. They spied out the land. This is when Joshua sends the spies into the land and says, bring back a report of what you find. Right? So they've gone through the land. They've come back. They've brought a report, and, and, and a group of men end up saying, you know what? We saw these people there. They were scary. We were like grasshoppers to them. So your translators have to figure out this group of people who they call the Nephilim, the fallen ones, what is it about them that makes these Israelites feel like grasshoppers in their sight? So most of your translators say, well, what would make you feel like a grasshopper? You probably feel small, right? You probably feel small, so those are probably giants. They're probably saying there are giants in the land, and we feel small in their size. Now, does the Bible have giants anywhere else in the Bible? Do you know of giants that appear anywhere else in the Bible? Goliath. Yeah, there you go. The story of David and Goliath. How tall was Goliath? Nine feet. About nine feet. He's about nine feet. So in this room, it would probably be... Um, well, the ceiling in this room is probably ten feet. So a foot below the ceiling. But it's not just tall. 
you got girth that goes with that, right? So you got a big dude. I'm thinking if I saw people walking around that that was their average height, I would be feeling kind of small. And if I was to use language that would try to convey that, um, okay, maybe I'll use something to describe me that's small. I felt like I was a little tiny thing in their sight. I felt like I was a grasshopper. I suppose I, I can believe that. Yeah, we do have the story of David and Goliath. There are also other giants that are mentioned. There's one when the Israelites go in to take the land. There's one of the kings, either yes. Og or Bashan, whose yes. bed was like 13 feet long. Exactly. Or yes. The king's name is Og. His land is Bashan or his region is Bashan. And yes, it describes his bed and it's huge. And there, he shows up in a couple other places. And almost everywhere he's mentioned, it carries with it also the idea of just this giant. This guy is a giant. So yeah, there are giants in the Bible. Now, we're not talking Hollywood giants. But we're talking, if you were in their company, you'd feel like the little dude. All right? You'd feel really small in their presence. All right? So that idea where your commentators, where your translating committees are trying to figure out what does Nephilim mean... They go to this passage because it's got the only other clue to the whole puzzle. And the passage seems to suggest that the word may have something to do with their stature or their size. Therefore, a lot of your translations will go with giants. Some of your translations, like ESV, leave it untranslated. Nephilim is a transliterated word, which means that's it in the Hebrew. You're getting in the English, English arranged letters for the, for the word in Hebrew. They are not even going to translate it for you. They're going to leave it untranslated. So that's what you've got there. So those versions have Nephilim. The other versions that have giants have gone, they've gone ahead and taken that next step and they've given you the translation that they think is the meaning behind it. But just recognize there isn't 100% consensus on this. Going back then to Genesis chapter 6, another clue that you have there is in verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, or Nephilim you'll have in that passage. When the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who are of old, men of renown. So something about these children has that word Nephilim, which could have to do with huge stature, could have to do with their size. They could be giants. It also has to do with their offspring being men of renown. There's something famous about them. What is it that makes them famous? It doesn't tell us. In fact, the writer of this place assumes that his audience knows what he's talking about. They're introduced with no fanfare. They're introduced in such a way that the writer is assuming, I don't have to explain this to my people that I'm writing to, because they're going to know. Unfortunately for us, we're removed by time, and that's been lost to history. We don't know what it is. We're left grasping for clues, trying to put together, who are these people? All right? These ideas up here that they could be fallen angels, they could be kings and rulers, they could be Seth's boys. All right? I'll say this. This one right here, this category right here, is the overwhelming favored category as to try to understand this passage. Overwhelming. These two other categories are usually proposed to placate the minds of people that would say, this is just too weird. Okay? <laughs> this is just too weird. Let's come up with something else. And so you'll get these other proposals. Okay? But this is the overwhelming category. And we're talking before Christ, even. Anybody ever heard of the Septuagint? Steve, what's the Septuagint? First five books of the Oh, wait a That's the Pentateuch. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> Sorry, I put you on the spot there. I shouldn't have done that. All right, the Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament into Greek that was done several hundred years before Christ. Okay, several hundred years before Christ, they decide we're going to put this into Greek. 
because by then you've got the uh, conquering of the world, you've got the spread, the Hellenization, everybody's got to learn Greek, everybody's got to learn Greek culture. So during Hellenization, everything's going to be Greek. One of the things that we want to make Greek is, well, our Hebrew kids are now growing up and some of them don't know Hebrew. Some of our Hebrew kids know Greek. Let's put the Greek, let's put the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. All right, 200 years before Christ, they translate the Old Testament into Greek. What do they do? They translate it as angels of God. So you've got, even before Christ, you've got angels of God instead of sons of God in their translation, in their Greek translation of the Septuagint. All right? So even at that time, they're saying, yeah, we understand these to be fallen angels. How can that be, though? Right? Isn't that our response? We're going, I know how babies are made. <laughs> and i got to tell you, i got problems with how babies would be made when it involves fallen angels, right? Isn't that our objection? We'd say, that, that sounds like myth. That sounds like legend. That sounds like fanciful stories. Could there be any basis in truth in that? I don't think so, right? Isn't that what we would say? That, that would be what repulses us when we would read something like that. So let's unpack it a little bit. Is it possible that it could be fallen angels? Is it possible? Let's look at a couple of ideas, all right? What would it take? What would it take for an angel to procreate with a human? What do you need? You need a body. You need a body. Does an angel ever take a body upon itself? Yes. There are lots of stories where the angels take upon themselves bodies. Let's look at one. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, you've got the appearance of the uh, angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord shows up in that story, and Abraham is hanging out at the at, at his tent. Right? He's just kicking back. It sounds like in the cool of the day. Well, maybe it's not the cool of the day. I'm borrowing language there from the garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But in Genesis chapter 18, you've got Abraham, he's at, the, he's at the entrance to his tent, and he looks up and he sees what? He sees three figures, right? We know after the fact that it's the angel of the Lord and two attendant angels, all right? The angel of the Lord, I would propose to you, would be a pre-incarnate um, Christ, all right, appearance of Christ. So he looks up, there's three beings, three men. He's seeing angels, but he thinks they're men. And he entreats that, please don't go by. Let me, let me take, you know, that hospitality that's so famous for, for a Middle Eastern culture. Please, please, come in. Sit down under the tree. Get your rest. Let me get some food for you. I'll get a bowl of water. We'll wash your, you know, we'll get your feet washed and everything. So he goes to his wife, honey, get the best flour. Make some really nice bread. He goes to his servant, hey, go out, get a great calf. We're going to make, we're going to make a barbecue. <laughs> we're going to have some sticks, you know. And they, they, he gets this whole thing set up. And these beings actually sit down and eat. With, with him standing by, watching over to see if there's anything you can do to meet their needs. All right? So here we have angels with bodies. They begin to enter into conversation with him, and they eat. All right? So there's a few things I want you to notice here. Well, they've got the bodies, but there's something else. They move, right? Maybe this was a vision. Maybe Abraham just imagined all the thing. Maybe it's just a mirage. You, no, it's not a mirage. Because if anything else, they move, all right? They eat, they converse with them. So there's, there's, there's a bodily form to them. There's an intelligence that comes with the dialogue that you have to have. But think even deeper than that. What do you have to have to move? You have to have muscles, right? That's under your skin. If you're looking and you're thinking, this is just a vision of what he sees. It's just a hologram of what he sees. No, there's something underneath that vision. There's muscles that are compelling those beings to move, right? They come over, they, they eat. They eat, and they speak. Okay, what do you need to do to speak? You need to inhale and expirate air, 
right? It's the air, that, the sound waves that travel through the air and they bounce off our eardrums, right? So there's this actual exchange of air. There's something from the outside going in, there's something from the inside going out, and that's happening as well with the eating. Because if you can explain everything else away, because you can't see what's going on inside these bodies, maybe it's just a hollow shell, where does the food go, right? There's something going on where they seem to be equipped in a bodily form for everything that their mission is going to require of them. So the next chapter is these, the two attendant angels end up going to Sodom. And they end up meeting Lot. And Lot, the nephew of Abraham, does the same thing. Hey, 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 stay at my house, stay at my house. You know, give me something to eat, you have a place to stay. And they go to Lot's house, and you guys probably remember the story. The men of the city, it says, from all quarters of the city, this is Genesis chapter 19, from all the different parts of the city. And then it specifically says, all the young and the old, all the men come to the house and they're about to break down the door. Send out the visitors. Send out the men that came to you today because we want to know them carnally banging on the door, right? And what happens, Lot goes outside the door and he's like, no, 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 this is a bad idea. Don't do this. Don't do this to my guests. He's the host. He's hosting them. He doesn't want them to be mistreated. So anyway, the angels reach out and they grab him and pull him back in. They've got bodies that are substantial enough that they can walk, that they can sit down, that they can eat, that they can breathe, that they can reach out and grab you and pull you back inside a door and take you by the hand and lead you from the town before it gets destroyed. So these angels have bodies. And this isn't the only place where spirit beings take upon human flesh. Can you think of another place where a spirit takes on flesh? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Right. Jesus himself, the incarnation. How about a woman getting pregnant? Mary. Do you remember the story where Mary gets visited by God and God says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a child. It's going to be a very special child. <laughs> and she says, how can this be? I, I, I don't know who I am. I'm a virgin. And God explains it to her. Do you remember that explanation? It's kind of weird. The Spirit's going to come upon you and overshadow you and then you're going to be pregnant. That's weird. So can it happen that a spirit being can take upon themselves a body? Yeah. Can it happen that somebody could give birth through some act of a spirit realm? Yeah, it seems mm -hmm. like it can happen. But it's just so weird, right, is what we want to think. That's just so weird. Look, let's look at a couple of other passages as well. Turn to Second Peter. Second Peter is near the end of your New Testament. Second Peter, we're going to go to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Somebody might reading verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down, in, down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So here we have in this passage... A kind of a cryptic reference to something that we're not really sure what he's talking about. Peter mentions, ends up mentioning in verse 4, something about angels who sinned. Something about angels that were cast down. Something about angels in chains of darkness. Something about angels reserved for judgment. And all of this being in connection with Noah and the flood. That's kind of strange. It's not conclusive, but it provides some possible connections. Turn to Jude. All right, Jude is even farther in the back of your New Testament. 
Jude is right before the book of Revelation. It's so short, there's not even a chapter. So you just go straight to verse numbers. Go to verse 5 and 6. Somebody mind reading 5 and 6. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So you have in this passage of Jude, verses 5 and 6, you have the mention of angels. There was some sort of sin. They are chained under darkness, and they're reserved for judgment, just like the passage in Second Peter. But this passage provides us two additional clues, kind of one and the same, though. It's this, in verse 6, it says, Angels who did not, what was their sin? Did not keep their proper domain. Angels that left their abode. So you've got angels that operated outside of the realm that was given to them by God. That was their sin. Can you think of any situation in your entire Bible where angels perhaps operated outside of the realm God had given them to operate in? This is your candidate. Perhaps that is connected to this. Where angels, if these are fallen angels, and they're having relations, bodily relations with women, it sounds like they're operating outside of a domain that God would say, these are your parameters, stay within them. It sounds like they're operating outside of them. The crime? Operating outside, outside category. All right. ESV says it's a position of authority. Position of authority. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's, like, it's, like, it's like reserve. For, those are your boundaries. Yeah. Those are your boundaries. Look at verse 7. The, ne- the very next verse. What does the next verse say? Has Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. Okay, if you are not used to writing in your Bible, I'm going to encourage you, write in your Bible all you want, because those notes are going to be very helpful later on in life when you come back to these passages. There's going to be something here to make a note of. All right? Look at verse 7. Some of your translations are going to have the word them or, or these. All right? Mine says having in like manner with these. All right? Circle that word these or them, if you have it as them. Now, different translations do different things. NIV has taken out the Greek word, the, the English word for the Greek word. There's no them in there. All right? So in the other translations, if you have them or these, the reason I'm saying that is because that word, you've got to ask yourself, what is that referring to? Who are the these? What are the these? And people would propose to you, well, if we're sticking just to verse 7, the, these are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The these are the cities like them. And they would say, that those are the these. Does that make sense? <laughs> those are the these. All right. So that the these is referring to the c- cities. But in Greek, you have masculine words and feminine words. All right. These do not agree. That word these does not agree with the cities. It's not describing the cities. It's describing something else. You have to go to the previous verse. It's describing the angels. It's describing the angels. So what does that do? It provides us an additional clue as to what the sin of the angels was. It talks about the angels. It talks about them leaving their abode or not keeping their proper domain. And in verse 7, it adds an additional bit of information about what their sin is. Sexual immorality going after strange flesh. 
fallen angels not operating within the boundaries that God gave them, involved in sexual immorality, going after strange flesh, ending up creating a race of people, of giants, of Nephilim, men of renown. Why would they be men of renown? Well, they're just tall. They're really tall. That could be. Think about, though, in your New Testament, people that are possessed by demons. Think about Jesus when he goes to the, the land of the Gerasenes, or some of your versions will say Gadarenes, and there's a demoniac, right? And this demoniac, it specifically says the people tried to bind him with chains, and he would always break the chains. He's got like a supernatural strength being possessed, all right? Or think of the story in Acts of the seven sons of Sceva, Sceva being a high priest, and they go around, and they're, they're trying to exercise demons from people. And the way they're doing it is they're saying, I rebuke you, you know, come out of this person in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. And this particular demon-possessed person says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And that demon-possessed man overwhelms the seven of them, beats them to a pulp. They go running, and they run out without their clothes. They run out naked because they took such a beating. Why is it that those men would be men of renown back in Genesis? Well, because it looks like demon-possessed people have supernatural strength. And if you're a person back in the Old Testament who's big and you've got supernatural strength, you're going to get noticed. And they're going to say, let's put you in charge of fighting people. And they're going to win some battles. And they're going to go, our heroes, he won the battles because he's so strong and he's so big. Samson, Samson had a spiritual power not unlike this, except that his was from God. It's not from fallen angels. Exactly, yeah, Samson had a supernatural power as well. Right. It seems like fallen angels being a good candidate does fit pretty well when you look at all these passages together. What would be the practical application for us then? If this is what the crime is, then the practical application is that God cares if we're out operating outside our boundaries. But what does that look like for us? Well, God would say, I have boundaries for you just as I have boundaries for them. And I expect you to operate within the boundaries that I give you and I expect them to operate within the boundaries I've given them. Is he only talking sex between the spirit realm and the physical realm? No, he's not. When he says something like, don't have any other gods beside me, if we decide we're going to worship something other than the one true God, we're outside the parameters that God's given us. If he says, honor your father and your mother, and we operate outside those boundaries, it's going to be bad for us. If he says, do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. When he gives us parameters and we operate outside those boundaries, we take upon ourselves the deserving of wrath that got the world destroyed in the first time. He gives us boundaries that we're to operate in. Here's another thing as well. Due to Christ coming in the flesh and dying in our place and shedding his blood for us, there's been a way made for us to enter into the very throne room of heaven. And we're invited to come and be in his presence. It's not a prohibition of us as human beings in the physical realm from dabbling in the spirit. God says, by all means, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to me. He wants us to be in the spirit realm as much as we physically can in his presence. On the good side, if you would. He doesn't want us on the dark side, all right? That's the realm we're not to go in. We're not to flirt around 
or give the devil a foothold in our lives where we go, you know what, a little bit of sin is okay. And what do we do? We crack open that door and we give the devil a foothold. He gets his foot in there and he's got a place. Now he can't close the door. All right? He wants us to recognize, by all means, come to the throne room of God. His blood has made a way for us. But do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place in your life. If you've got places where you're tempted, you say, I recognize this for what it is. This is the devil trying to get a foothold in the door of my spirit. This is the devil trying to get a foothold in my life. And if you dabble in that, what's going to happen? The same thing that happened to Eve when she took a bite of that fruit. When she didn't think that taking a bite of that forbidden fruit was going to have ramifications in the spirit realm. And then it came down upon her. Oh my goodness, we're still paying the price, aren't we? <laughs> she shared it with Adam. Oh, now we're all paying the price. We're all paying the price because our decisions in this life in the physical realm have ramifications in the eternal spirit realm. So watch your decisions. Esther's prayer for wisdom because she has decisions to make is a prayer we should all be praying. James says if you lack wisdom, ask. God says I'll get it. We need wisdom to recognize that our decisions have ramifications not just in this life but in the spirit realm as well. Alright, let's pray. God, we thank you. Lord, too often we think that the spirit realm is something distantly removed from this physical realm that we live in. But Lord, really, they're not far separated. In fact, they're closer than even adjoining. There's overlap and there's places where sometimes we touch a different realm and maybe don't realize it. Lord, just because we can't see it, doesn't mean it's not there. Too often we go through life and we think the physical realm is here and now and the spirit realm is in my future. We pray that you would help us to see that there's stuff going on in a realm right around us that we too easily dismiss because we can't see it with our eyes or touch it with our fingers. We pray that you would help us. Help us to have minds, Lord, and eyes that would be open to see the armies surrounding us and the battle that wages. We pray that you would help us to see, Lord, that this is not a realm to be feared, but it's a realm, Lord, for which we need to be equipped and armor ourselves up, that we need to be engaging in battle and that we need to be pressing the fight on with you as our commander and it's promised the gates of hell will not prevail. Lead us, God. Train us and lead us. Help us, Lord, to make wise choices. Bless us with wisdom. Bless us with discernment. Go with us now to make a difference in this world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.